How's everybody this morning? All right. Good to see we're starting to uh, fill back in a little bit. Um, you know, we've all had a rough patch. I think everybody has with uh, not just not just COVID, but uh, all the little winter bugs that are going around. People are exposed and stuff like that. So uh, it's good to see us back. I just, I can't wait for everybody to just all be back together. I'm, don't you miss everybody? Oh, I just, I mean, it's, online is one thing, but to see somebody in person, to be able to see their smile, and uh, it's just, at least to me, it's a life-giving thing. I don't know about you, but um, yeah, I love it. So uh, it's good to see you all. Good to see you. So um, I don't remember the other thing that I was going to, I didn't write it down, so I won't say it. It wasn't important. <laughs> um, Luke. Luke chapter 2, we're, gonna, um, we're going to uh, be in Luke 2 today. We're going to finish a chapter, keep your finger in there. I know what I was going to say. Um, this, did you notice that we still have the Christmas decorations up? We still did Christmas song. and um, I, I love just continuing to remember the incarnation of Jesus until we get, you know, uh, actually next week, um, we're going to see John the Baptist, but... Um, but to see that and, and to know that he came, I mean, just to let it drop off and fall off, Jesus came. And especially this year, as we, as we look at the gospel of Luke, and we look at this, this tone of um, astonishment, this tone of um, the incarnation, the worship, uh, the, the praise of the angels and the, and the shepherds and all of that, that sets the tone for the whole book. So... I want this to be a reminder because you're not going to see all this next week. I want it to be a reminder to us that as we go through our series in Luke, let's do it worshipfully. Um, look at the Bible as an act of worship um, because it is. Uh, the Bible is a book that ought to draw us to Jesus. So Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, <clears throat> they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to them, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in their heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Our holy, um, so, um, our holy and, our, and our gracious God. Lord, we, we, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name. We ask that you would touch and bless those who are absent today. We have many ill and exposed to illness who are unable to join us this morning. 
And we ask that our online presence is a blessing to them. We ask that you teach us how to hear your voice and to use wisdom and to trust and respect one another. Even those who hold to different convictions on issues such as health and politics. Grant to us that we might hear your voice this morning as your word is read and taught. Teach us to be teachable, to grow, and to mature as believers. Thank you for sending Jesus to walk among us and to save us. God, we thank you for his grace and his mercy toward us while we were yet sinners. We humbly now submit our hearts to you as we open your word. We give you our attention Lord, we pray that you would be with us. Speak to us through your word. Help us to learn from you and to know you more through what you have given us to know you by. We give over this time to you. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Apologize, my throat's getting a little dry. I did a service uh, yesterday down the hill. And so um, I just now started getting real dry. So <laughs> I apologize <clears throat> for that. Um, if you have kids, there's a good chance that you have a losing a child story. When I, was a, when I was a teenager, my friend's mom drove from one end of Temecula all the way uh, at the north end, all the way to the south end of Temecula to visit my mom. When she got there, my mom asked where her four-year-old was. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones back then. This is in the 80s. And so she hightails it back uh, home to find the four-year-old politely waiting by, for her by the mailbox. <laughs> um, just sitting there. Maybe it was early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Anyhow, uh, Denise and I, we, we almost lost a very fast one-year-old at Boston Logan International Airport one time. That was Actually, she wanted me to correct myself. I almost lost him because I guess I was responsible um, and I told her I wouldn't tell the story about how she lost the same child at a national park with cliffs and waterfalls. So, I love you too. Uh, there, at Boston Logan International Airport, there's this play area. Um, and for those of us that have had long layovers uh, with children, we can see how that could be useful. Um, and so, and if you've been to Boston Logan International Airport, uh, and you certainly have if you've ever been flying from Buffalo to Salt Lake, because that's JetBlue's um, hub. And so we're there, and the kids are there. The problem is that they decided that they weren't going to build any like physical barriers in this play area. And so I had the night before gotten home from class as usual after midnight, and we were on our way to the to Buffalo Airport before 5 a.m. So by the time we got to Boston Logan International Airport. Just keeping my eyes open was an enormous undertaking. And if you know our kids, you can guess which one decided to, that it was time to take off running through a busy terminal the moment I lost control of my eyelids. So the next thing I knew it, I hear Denise's voice in a panic. Where's your son? So I jump. Uh, I jump up. That kid's already like 50 yards away, running through crowds of cranky travelers in this busy terminal. And, I, and I'm t if you've ever chased, it, chased after a 10-year-old, or a, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, if you've ever chased after a, a toddler tired, 
Um, you know, it's like running through jello. Um, you just, and so um, I caught him. But can you imagine the economic impact it would have had if we had lost a toddler at Boston Logan Airport? Like thousands of flights delayed. It would have impacted the entire world. We would have been on the news and the entire world would be asking how an attentive parent loses a toddler at Boston Logan International Airport. Well, Jesus wasn't a toddler when Mary and Joseph lost him, but nevertheless, they lost him. He was 12 years old, and he was probably different than other 12-year-olds in some respects. I mean, if you've had a 12-year-old, you've probably had those moments where you've kind of hoped that they would get lost. Like, <laughs> oh no, he's still in Boston? Well, let's not let it ruin our vacation. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Somebody will find him. I'm sure he'll be fine. Um, no, I'm pretty sure Jesus was ple pleasant enough adolescent that he, you know, Mary and Joseph probably never really had that thought. But he was a kid. He had to grow up. He had to go through all the normal development and the rites of passage, uh, right? It's, it's hard for us to see. It's hard for us to understand because he was 100% God at the same time as being 100% human, we call that the hypostatic union. We've talked about that uh, in the last few weeks. But anyhow, let's, let's backtrack just a little bit um, from our passage today to get the context like we did last week. And we're going we're gonna to unpack this a little bit because this is so important um, to our understanding of who God is and really to our worship. So Luke 2, uh, verse 39. It says, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and, and the favor of God was upon him. So here in these two verses, we're actually dealing with a wider time period than it might seem here, because there are some other events that take place that Luke doesn't mention. So turn with me if you would. Keep your finger on Luke. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be in there for a few minutes. Matthew chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? <laughs> for we saw his star and it rose, uh, when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, was, uh, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and Jerusalem, all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where, Christ, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his brother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they parted to their own country by another way. Jesus was born in a manger, but Mary and Joseph evidently found a place to stay afterwards, uh, some sort of some sort of house in Bethlehem, and then Joseph participated in the census, and Mary recovered from giving birth. And on the eighth day, Jesus gets circumcised in Jerusalem, which isn't very far from Bethlehem. I'm sure it was a bit uh, longer than that before Mary would be able to travel uh, as far as Nazareth or Egypt. Um, we don't the 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 time frame is a little finicky there but um, anyhow whether it be on foot or donkey Mary would have you know had to wait for that so and today the drive from Bethlehem to Jerusalem is about a half hour and you can walk it in less than two hours evidently at least I've never tried um, but uh, so it wouldn't have been that far for her but to travel any further so they were sticking around for a time and at some point during that time that they were in Bethlehem, they were visited by some sort of philosophers or dignitaries uh, from the east. And we're not sure how many. The, the song, We Three Kings, might not be super accurate. It makes for a cute children's play. But the wise men were important enough that Herod paid attention to them and wanted to know what was going on. Herod was a pretty insecure guy. So the thought of a king being born in the midst uh, probably gave him a bit of anxiety. But the wise men were warned by the Holy Spirit in a dream, not to tell Herod, uh, and they took a different route home. So, so we don't know about the religious views that these, these wise men had, but evidently God was working through them uh, and also probably working in them. They definitely worshipped him, at least according to the scriptures. Herod's anxiety got the best of him. Let's continue. Uh, Matthew 2.13 now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem uh, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because... They are no more. So again, the time frame is a little weird. It's hard to put the pieces together here. But I have this book. Um, it's not a Christian book. It's just a, a, a history about Herod. Um, and it suggests that since Matthew is the only record of this, it must not have happened. That is patently ridiculous. This is a timestamp. Nobody reading Luke early on like in the area of like Greece, would have even cared about Herod killing some babies in Bethlehem. 
it, it wouldn't have been a big deal because they knew Herod was a bad guy and did awful things all the time. They would just ask, why is this included? But to Matthew, the readers in Judea would have remembered that probably very clearly even uh, some time later. So, uh, I mean, besides that, like, honestly, you can't dismiss a historical record just because it's only reported in one place. Like, that's foolish. Everybody knows that it goes against all the rules of looking at history, uh, and yet people do it when it comes to the Bible. I don't know why. Uh, I do know why, actually. <laughs> it's because they don't want to believe it. Anyhow, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But then he heard that Archelaus uh, was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod and was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and, and he lived in a place in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now Herod died in 1 BC. That would have made Jesus about two or three years old when Joseph got the green light to return to Nazareth. All of this is taking place in the time frame of Luke chapter 2, verse 39 to 40. Just those two verses that we just read, all of this takes place. And then from there, we just know Jesus is growing in strength and wisdom as a boy. And then we pick up the narrative a year before his bar mitzvah, at his, uh, at his um, or rather as his mother and his adoptive father traveled to Jerusalem. Let's read that. So back to Luke. Back over to Luke chapter 2. Verse 41, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now the first thing I want you to notice, and maybe just as a footnote for now, is the power of adoption. Uh, Luke says his parents. It's plural. And Paul likens our relationship to the father as an adoptive relationship. And he actually uses the word hoiothesia, which means to place in the condition of a son to, ta to, de to uh, describe our relationship with God. Now, Jesus is the only begotten of the father, as in Luke, uh, or as in John 3.16, right? He's the only begotten. And we are adopted as co-heirs, according to Romans 8.17. And yet in his humanity, Jesus also experiences adoption. Confused yet? All I'm saying is that this further enforces that he is fully God and fully human at the same time that he can identify with us both in being begotten and adopted. Now the law required that uh, adult Jewish males attend a Jewish feast in Jerusalem at least three times a year. Uh, some of the poor people would often go just once a year because it wasn't always possible to travel that much and there was some grace in that. So for Joseph here though, it, he would take his family to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. It says that he did that every year. In fact, Jesus continued to do this and eventually when he does this about 21 years later, um, that is when he 
is crucified. Passover remembers, if you recall, uh, when the Jews were in Egypt, and God's judgment passed over the homes of the Jewish people that had the blood of the lambs painted on their doorposts according to the instruction of Moses during the plagues before Pharaoh let them go. Hebrews 11.28, so you can read about Passover in Exodus, but Hebrews 11.28 says this, By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now it's interesting that Jesus was born in the environment of a sacrificial lamb, and then he was eventually crucified in Jerusalem during Passover. By his blood... The judgment for our sins is passed over and we are counted righteous. Who has felt the nails upon his hands, the nails that were mine that he took upon himself? Luke also tells us that when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now, the major rite of passage uh, for a Jewish boy back then, and I believe today as well, was bar mitzvah. That's where the boy would turn 13 years old, that uh, he'd become a man and be responsible for his own actions and for keeping those laws that Jewish men are required to keep. During this time, it was customary to take a boy to Jerusalem and show them the temple and the different sites around the holy city a year before their bar mitzvah, to prepare them for the ceremonies of the following year. So let's continue in verse 43. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, the caravan that they were in would have included immediate and extended family, as well as neighbors and other families from their community. So there would be a significant number of people there. Um, have any of you watched Home Alone, the movie? Did you watch that during the, during the Christmas season? Um, some of you hate the movie and think it's dumb. Some of you think it's really funny. Um, as responsible adults, our first thought when we watch Home Alone is, what is Mr. McAllister's mortgage payment like? We all thought that, right? You've seen that house? But the other thing we noticed, you have to have noticed this like I did, their mode of tra travel was genius. What they did was all the adults sat in first class. Now, I don't even think I could afford first class if I was traveling alone. But all the adults traveled first class well, they stuck the kids in coach. That's got to be almost as awesome as hiring an, a, a private jet. Like, really. Have you ever traveled with six kids between the ages of one and ten? These are the thoughts I have when I watch Home Alone. I don't know. Um, just stick them in the back. Um, you know, th th this Jewish caravan, the women and children would travel up in the front while the older boys, uh, the men and the older boys would trail them behind the pack. Can you imagine traveling like a first century Jewish family in our day and age? Every mom, every mom here is like, no way, Jose. 
of all the ladies chasing toddlers with brooms. Stay with me. You're wandering too far. Quit fighting over the dreidel. Don't eat that. The men are like, man, these ladies are slow. You want to take a nap or roll? Like, this wouldn't happen in this day and age. Um, so anyhow, and, and you know what happens when you assume, right? Now, don't answer that. We all know. It's fine. Here, because of Jesus' age, Mary would have assumed uh, that he was in the back with Joseph. And Joseph probably would have assumed that Mary had him up front. Wasn't that huge a mistake until they go to camp for the night and realize, uh-oh, we just lost baby Jesus. <laughs> it reads like an I Love Lucy episode, right? Like, so they're frantically looking around for Jesus among the family and friends and everybody. What's he done? And Mary does that expression that Kevin McAllister's mom did when she realized that they left, she left her small child home alone. Get it! Right? Like with the eyes popping out. Um, and so Mary and Joseph, they make a 180. They head back to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, why did they spend three days searching before they checked the temple? We don't know. In fact, we don't even know they did it. They could have checked the temple. He wasn't there. It doesn't say he was there all three days. He could have been. That's probably a good assumption. Um, but the text doesn't tell us, so we just don't know what's happening in those three days. The implication that he was there in the temple all three days could exist, though, since nothing else is said. And because of this dialogue he's having with these, these PhDs, these scholars in the temple, and the answers that they're astounded with. And then his answer, which is basically, didn't you know you'd find me here? Um, but anyhow, it's still not completely clear as to what all that looked like. But here we see boy Jesus in the temple. He's a little Socratic. There's dialogue here with questions and answers. And it brings us to one of the most difficult things to understand about the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. When, when he was speaking to the scholars in the temple, was he speaking from his omniscience? Or was he speaking with human limitations as far as knowledge and wisdom? I think it's an important question to ask because even though there's a tremendous amount of mystery surrounding it, we can see how our everlasting God can experientially empathize with our humanity. He understands us. He knows us. Did he have to learn the great theological truths that in his divinity he already knew from eternity past? Did his human brain limit the knowledge that he could access in this human life? Warren Wiersbe said this, he said, in his incarnation, he set aside the independent use of his own divine attributes and submitted himself wholly to the Father. Well, let's continue reading, and then we'll unpack this some more. It says, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, we can ask if... Mary was wrong to scold him, but I don't think we could blame her. And I don't think we'll ever really figure out the dynamics there, but can you, can you imagine being her? Like, I think it was perfectly reasonable for her to be upset after looking for him for half the week. Uh, she said she had, that they had searched in great distress. 
I mean, well, yeah, you lost baby Jesus. I mean, losing your kid's pretty bad. But losing your kid knowing that he's the great deliverer that God had promised to Israel and entrusted to your care, that, that had to freak him out just a little bit, right? The key is that part, or the key part of this rather, was that his parents were astonished. The nature of Jesus is such that when we, we must look upon him in astonishment, if we could understand and explain how all of it works, it wouldn't be so astonishing, would it? We ought to look at the nature of our God with astonishment. When the early church found itself having to defend the doctrine of the Trinity, they never actually proposed to have a complete understanding of the triune nature of God. What they did was they they searched the scriptures for some sort of framework and boundary to prevent uh, heresy. Um, but there's still so much that we don't understand and will not understand this side of eternity. So the benefit of accepting our limitations as to what we can comprehend about God is that we can be astonished. Let's continue. Verse 49. He said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now normally on Fridays I head down the hill uh, to Marietta and I, I take my dad out to lunch. And, and one such day I'm coming back and I paid a visit to Mike and Annette Sebastian. For all that they had been through, they looked fantastic. They had energy. We were laughing and joking and and having great discussions. And then Mike took me and showed me his office with all the football memorabilia. Have you ever been to Mike Sebastian's office with all the football memorabilia? Oh, oh, he's got this leather helmet, professional leather football helmet that was his dad's from Pittsburgh. Oh my goodness, right? Like, don't make these things an idol, but that is cool to see, right? And, and I, at the moment, I, I kind of wished that Mike would adopt me so that I would have more access to the football stuff. We could go historical, right? Back in the olden days, you would adopt adults. And I wasn't paying attention to the time, and I'd forgotten that my kids had a soccer game. And I also was not aware that my phone didn't have any service at Mike and Annette's house. So, well, Denise, she'd been trying to get a hold of me she had no idea where I was or whose house that she was sitting in front of when she tracked me down on GPS with Life360 on her phone. <laughs> so standing next to my new sur surrogate father, Mike, I told her, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I wasn't clever enough at the time. That was cool, though. <laughs> but she found me, right? Um, they didn't have GPS back in Jesus' time. It'd be a few years. It's interesting, though, that Jesus said that he must be in his father's house. These are the first words from Jesus that we have recorded. He's 12 years old. Everything else we see is he's an adult. But Luke records Mary and Joseph as his parents. So, so we can see here, there's, there's the tension between his divinity and his humanity, right? The, his earthly father is right here, 
and he's speaking here about his heavenly father. And so he's both 100% human, 100% uh, God at the same time. It's a great mystery. Mary and Joseph would have been aware that he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. But the, would they have understand the implications of that? Do they, did they know that he was the son of God in the way that we know? Did they understand the Trinity and that Jesus is Yahweh the Son, but not Yahweh the Spirit or Yahweh the Father? That there were gaps in their knowledge, some of which we have filled today, because we can look back, some of which is still a mystery. But the information that we take for granted today, much of it would not have been very easy for them to grasp. Let's move on. Verse 51 and he went down to them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, first off, Nazareth is north of Jerusalem. Don't get confused that they said up because Jerusalem is on a hill, right? They weren't talking north-south. They were talking on a hill, kind of like we live in Idlewild. We can go north to, well, who would go to L.A.? We could go north to Knott's Berry Farm, but we say we're going down to Knott's Berry Farm, right? Because we're at 5,400 feet. Um, they were at 2,500 feet, not quite as high. Um, I don't want to say we're cooler than Jerusalem, but we're definitely higher. Um, Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus was submissive to Mary and Joseph, and, and, and that's, that's very human. It's a function of his humanity. God, here's the thing, God does not, nor should he submit to any man. Yet, in his humanity, Jesus is 100% human. And that means his boundaries were also 100% human. Remember the psalm we read last week? Psalm 8. I love this one. Uh, we'll read it again. Psalm 8, starting verse 1. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to, the, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxygen, uh, oxen, <laughs> oxygen too, um, uh, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And how is it that this great God submits himself to anyone or anything? It's a mystery. But it lets us see that he emptied himself. He subjected himself to the same limitations that we are subject to. And it's the second time that we see Mary treasuring these things in her heart. And I think here she's even treasuring his submission. So if we can step back, we'll allow ourselves to be astonished at the, the great mysteries of God. We can then rightly count them as the treasures that they are. Here's the last piece of that. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. How can an omniscient God increase in his wisdom? Today, there's a, a movement that has gained terrifying traction in the church. It's called open theism. 
Open theism basically teaches that God is, is not omniscient. It's the idea that God kind of created everything to see what would happen. Basically, open theists uh, hold that if God absolutely knew the future, human beings could not truly be free. Therefore, God does not know absolutely everything about the future. Open theism teaches that the future is not knowable. Therefore, God knows everything that can be known, but he does not know the future. And open theism is patently false. It's a heresy, and it's a gross misrepresentation of God's sovereignty and created order. Psalm 139, verse 4. says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And verse 16, it says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This, this view, open theism, is being promoted uh, in varying degrees, even in the uh, many uh, traditionally Bible-teaching churches. God is absolutely omniscient. Jesus is God, and yet Jesus gained wisdom, stature, and favor with God and humans in his humanity. How can that be? It's confusing. It's hard. It's astonishing. R.C. Sprawl puts it this way. He says, when looking at Jesus' two natures, we see that we can't divide them, but we must distinguish them. For example... When Jesus walked down the street, he had physical legs, arms, fingers, and toes. Now we have to ask this, were his legs, arms, and fingers, and toes a manifestation of his deity? Of course not. God is not physical. The divine nature doesn't have legs. It doesn't have arms, fingers, or toes, speaking in the physical sense. When Jesus was hungry or thirsty, did that show his deity or his humanity? It showed his humanity, of course. That is what it is to distinguish but not separate. We recognize that the one person of Christ acted according to one or the other nature at various times. When the one person of Christ was thirsty, it was according to his human nature, but that does not mean that he was thirsty according to his divine nature. God never gets thirsty, but humans get thirsty. That's easy enough to understand when we're talking about flesh and blood and getting thirsty and getting hungry. But what about when it comes to knowledge? So, Sprawl goes on to point to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, 32 says, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It's Jesus that said that. So Sprawl continues, Jesus' human knowledge was as limited as anybody else's human knowledge unless the divine nature communicated information to the human nature. He pointed out that prophets uh, had supernatural knowledge of the future. But did they get their knowledge from their own minds? No. God revealed it to them. So because Jesus accepted the limitations of humanity, he relied upon the Father, the Holy Spirit, or his divine spirit for that. Is that really hard to comprehend? Yes, it is. It's okay if you're confused. It should lead us to aston astonishment. Now the first thing we, we need to take away from all of this is to, to marvel at the nature of our Lord. How can he be fully human 
and fully God at the same time and yet subject himself to human limitations in the incarnation. It's a, it's a profound mystery uh, that we should treasure in our astonishment as Mary did. The second thing is that we need not to be discouraged when we can't put it all together. We can be satisfied to keep our understanding within that framework and boundaries of biblical orthodoxy and be astonished at how little we know. Let me illustrate uh, this by, by addressing a couple of very old Christological heresies. Uh, since all this has been covered before, let's, not, let's, let's just go back in time before we reinvent the wheel here, okay? Now we can go back to a period after the persecution of Christians had ended. And Christians were now not only free to worship publicly, but they were also respected. And now they could gather and speak, for their, uh, speak of their faith freely. They were free to discuss theological questions openly. And because there were about 300 years where they, they were persecuted and couldn't really have these discussions openly, a lot of questions went unasked and unanswered. But now... The church is in a period of time when a lot of ideas just begin floating around, and many, if not, all, uh, if not most of them, were kind of bad ideas, or were based, uh, they were based on the idea that Christian was spreading faster than sound or complete doctrine could be spread. It was spreading, the name of Jesus was spreading, but people were not uh, growing in their understanding as quickly as, as it was spreading. And, and written copies of the Old and New Testaments couldn't be distributed that quickly either. So it's a time that we saw pastors and church leaders from all over gather frequently to address and correct the plurality of ideas and to preserve biblical orthodoxy. Uh, most of these councils did not pros propose to define a particular doctrine, but to develop kind of a biblical framework in which it could be understood and to set theological boundaries that would protect people from unwittingly wandering into error or heresy. The first one of these I want to mention is the monophysite heresy. This is the idea that if Jesus was one person, he must only have had one nature, just like the rest of us. The question is over whether or not that's a human nature or a divine nature. And since the Bible speaks of both, what they came up with is that it must be a blend of the two. Not completely either, but a blend of the two. The problem is that if Christ's nature was a blend of the human and the divine, his nature was neither one, but something unique and different. That heresy was condemned at the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451. The second heresy is called Nestorianism. Uh, that one's named after the heretic Nestorius. And it taught that if Christ had two natures, he must also be two persons, human and divine. This heresy was also condemned at the Council of Chalcedon and was also condemned at the Council of Ephesus before that in AD 431. So even with our long history of revisiting these kinds of issues, the hypostatic union, the, the, nature of, uh, the, the, the two natures of Jesus, is still probably the most difficult doctrine to wrap our minds around apart from the Trinity itself. Now we can actually accept, it's not that hard to accept that Jesus emptied himself and yet still maintained his divinity while subjecting himself to human limitations. But I think it would be impossible for us to truly identify with that, to, to be able to wrap our minds around how he could have 
function relying on the Holy Spirit as we do. I think the great part is that we can learn something profound through our astonishment. How do we respond as we treasure these things? As we marvel at them? How can I apply this great theological truth that I can't even wrap my mind around to my daily life? How really was Jesus an example to us since we only share in his human nature and not his divine nature? So if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 2, I think Paul nailed it here uh, in his letter to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, starting verse 3. And I would love for you guys to remember this. Uh, memorize this passage, Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Because it gives us the instruction, it gives us why. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. I used to give... I used to give a lot of challenge when I would teach or preach. And it's something that I don't do quite as often as anymore. Um, but I often give somebody, give, give people something to do related to the scripture they've been taught. But I have one for you this week. Memorize that passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Memorize that passage. I've included it in the handout. Um, listen, if you're anything like me, you struggle with pride. That's the human condition. That's the root of sin. But if Jesus, the King of kings, eternal God, could step down from heaven, empty himself to be born outdoors, placed in an animal's food dish, live a life of social and economic struggle, never sin, and then go to the cross for my sins? If he could do that, I think we can humble ourselves to look after the interests of others. Not to hold our own opinions in such high esteem, but to treat one another with real, tangible respect and love. And to offer ourselves and our interests to be used for the benefit of the people around us at whatever cost God might find necessary to us. Let's pray. Our holy, heavenly Father, we are broken and needy people. In our pride, we compare ourselves to one another and ignore our own sin. We have not loved you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, forgive us. 
Humble us to see our own desperate need. Humble us to be gracious and merciful to those around us. Cause us, O Lord, to see our great need that we might live in humility and graciousness to one another. God, help us to withhold judgment toward others and to fall humbly at your feet in repentance over our own sin. Cause us to honor you for who you are at whatever cost you deem necessary to us. God, help us to know and to recall your word as we go about our daily lives. Let us live biblical, cruciform, and holy lives that you might be glorified in us. And so, God, we offer ourselves over to you as true and living sacrifices of praise. As we enter this week, we enter our mission field, be with us and guide us, we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.